Welcome to the latest edition of The Third Wheel, Herbert Smith Freehill's podcast for all things ESG in Australia. I'm Tim Stutt, partner in our Sydney office and Australian lead for ESG. And I'm joined by Mel Debenham, who is partner in our Perth office and general guru for environmental law. For those of you who are listening in for the first time, the format of The Third Wheel is pretty simple. Each edition, Mel and I are joined by an expert third wheel who we interview on an ESG topic relevant to Australian business. But before we introduce our guests for today, I thought we might have a warm-up round. For those of you who heard our last edition, Mel cheekily put me on the spot for my predictions on the government's climate policy, and now is my chance to return fire. Mel? <laughs> Are you expecting the Prime Minister to make it onto his flight to Glasgow in a couple of weeks' time? Yes or no? <laughs> That's a great one. Um, I'm going to take a punt. I'm going to say yes. Yeah. Um, the bigger question will be, will the PM offset <laughs> the emissions of the flight? Wow. But, yes, I, I say yes, we will see Scott Morrison in Glasgow. Well, heard it here first optimism about a new policy emerging and Prince Charles is going to be very happy, I think. <laughs> but now for our guests, in a break with tradition, we're excited to be joined today by not one but two third wheels, which if my math suffices means that we have a stable four wheels in operation today. <laughs> we're off our trike. <laughs> <laughs> Our guests today are both from the Human Rights Resources and Energy Collaborative and are going to be talking to us about human rights, diligence and modern slavery. We have Sharon Yap, who is Human Rights Principal at South 32, as well as Gemma Wilford, who's Senior Advisor for Human Rights at Fortescue. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Hi. Mel, would you like to kick off the questions? Definitely will. Um, and for those who have listened to The Third Wheel before, um, we like to start the episode um, a little bit introspectively with a personal reflection on ESG. Um, so Sharon and Gemma, um, why is ESG important and what does ESG mean to you? Hi, everybody, and thanks so much for letting me join your podcast. Um, I think as a human rights advisor, I'm going to be pretty biased and I think always zoom in on the S in ESG because simply put for me, the S in ESG is all about human rights and it's about the equality and dignity of every person, no matter where they are, um, what they do, where they live or any other status. So, um, But then I think um, with your audience, putting my other hat on as still a practicing lawyer, I think we don't often talk about the other acronym or the other letter, G, which is, I think, just as important and one that I'm equally as passionate about, which is about just fundamentally we rewiring how we do business through strong governments, systematising human rights, and just operationalising ESG into the fabric of how we do business into every role, every function, and every team. Here, here, Sharon. As a governance lawyer, that's all music to my ears, Sharon. <laughs> Gemma, how about you? Oh, thanks. <clears throat> thanks for um, having me. It's great to be here. Um, look, I do agree with Sharon. I'm obviously very much focused on the S. 
Um, and yeah, I'm a, a social performance and a human rights practitioner. So that is very, very important to me. Um, from my personal perspective, I think ESG is important mostly because it's just linked to my values and it's, you know, probably linked to most people's values. Um, it impacts all of us. So it doesn't matter, you know, if you look at it at the individual level or at an organisational level. Um, it really, I mean, all the E, the S and the G, it impacts everyone. So um, I do believe that businesses can respect human rights while operating successfully. I don't think it's a, an and or or scenario. I think it's um, it's a must. So I will also say, though, maybe controversially, um, that I don't think G is the least talked about letter. I still think it's the S. So <laughs> maybe I am biased. I could be biased. <laughs> We could definitely have a debate around whether it's the E or the S or the G that doesn't get enough airtime. Um, but we will be focusing in today um, on the centre um, and it's picking up on the conversation um, that we started last pod with Anthony Crockett. Um, I'm really excited to have the opportunity to talk to you, Sharon and Gemma, um, because um, the Human Rights Resources Energy Collaborative is a homegrown organisation um, here in Western Australia. I'm really interested to hear about its genesis. Um, where did the idea come from um, and what work has the coalition been up to? Well, I can maybe take that one. Um, it really started back in 2018 now and it was really organic. It Perth's a small place, as you know, um, and it was just a bunch of us like-minded practitioners just bumping into each other. Um, particularly as we were all um, going to seminars on the Modern Slavery Act and that upcoming legislation. Um, and so, to be honest, you know, we have a chip on our shoulder in the West Coast over here, but we were feeling a little bit left out of not being able to find the travel budgets to go to all the East Coast meetings and um, sessions. So we thought, well, why not just form something here? And so it started off just as simple as that, um, human rights advisors and lawyers and um, supply people coming together um, and we had a very catchy name back then, the WA Modern Slavery Collaborative because we really were focused in on the modern slavery issue at the time. Um, but our goal was really simple. We were, we're all busy um, and we were doing this in our spare time, to use a better word, um, and so we didn't want just to have another meeting for the sake of meetings. Um, we really wanted to come together to focus on what could we practically do together as like-minded practitioners to... Um, building initiatives or projects that we would actually use in our day-to-day -day jobs as human rights advisors and that we knew that if we could work together, we could have greater impact because, as you all know, human rights is challenging, complex, it's not easy, um, and it's often systemic issues that are, are shared issues for particularly the resources and in, um, energy sector. So we really wanted to zoom in on um, being practical. Maybe Gemma's got some more thoughts on it as well, though. Yeah, no, I think Sharon has has covered it. I mean, we really, um, we'd been collaborating, like Sharon said, for quite a few years, and we ended up just kind of earlier this year actually just making that decision to to broaden our focus from just modern slavery to human rights and mostly because of what Sharon says you know human rights permeates so many different parts of business um, all of our businesses I think and it, it is really linked so you know from your health and safety to diversity and inclusion and, and obviously social performance as well and all the components of that um, so it really made sense for us to widen um, our, our group and continue that sharing which was really really valuable so we 
we've um we've been really lucky actually. We've we've grown so much and we've pretty much just grown through um word of mouth and, and very organically as Sharon mentioned. Um and we get to work with amazing people um and also you know amazing organizations. So we've been quite fortunate to have a couple of specialists come and work with us um and sometimes partner with us like Walk Free, uh, which has been great. Um but yes, we're still very much focused on those those practical deliverables. Just on that practical point, Gemma, uh, last edition we talked to Anthony Crockett about EU mandatory human rights due diligence laws, and I'd be really keen to hear a little bit from the both of you around what human rights due diligence looks like for your organisations, and and particularly the practical side of it, what sorts of tools do you use and what sorts of Mm -hmm. things are particularly helpful for business in this area? Yeah, definitely. Um, so at Fortescue, respect for human rights of all people is embedded throughout our business. Um, we are aligning with the UNGPs, so the United Nations Guiding Principles for Business and Human Rights, and we have a very strong policy commitment on that. Um, we're constantly working on our due diligence processes um, to try and refine and improve them. And we also have a very specialist focus on remediation as well. Um, I look after a human rights work program, and that really helps us prioritise our work, and it covers streams Um, from the systems that we actually have in place um, for our due diligence and the effectiveness and appropriateness of them, as well as any um, potential gaps. Um, And it focuses on specific human rights related matters such as, you know, modern slavery, security, labour, Indigenous people, training and, and others. Uh, from a tools perspective, we obviously have policies and procedures in place and we're, you know, we're also developing standards to assist with our assurance processes um, later on down the track. Um, we do have an internal human rights advisory group that I chair with representatives from across our business, both here in Australia and also overseas. Um, that group reports to our Audit Risk Management and Sustainability Committee, which also has representatives from our board. So it's a full, you know, cross-business approach. Um, We do internal assessments, so we do internal risk assessments, we have checklists, we do in-country assessments as well, Um, and we're also hoping to move towards doing peer assessments and also peer reviews to really help build um, internal capability and knowledge on human rights. Um, We do a bunch of external assessments as well, and that can take the form of um, third-party screening tools uh, or, you know, data platforms and software. Also risk assessments, um, you know, social and human rights impact assessments, uh, assurance verification and and audits as well. Um, From a training perspective, I think training is really, really important. Um, And we do have a face-to-face training uh, module for high risk uh, groups in our business, but we're also expanding that to an online uh, module, which will be for all employees in um, the next financial year. Um, and then lastly, this isn't really so much of a tool, but it would be, I think, a bit remiss uh, for me as a, a social performance and human rights practitioner, not to mention uh, engagement here. So we obviously have tools that help us manage our stakeholder engagement, but, you know, keeping in touch with our communities, understanding what their needs are, um, you know, what are what are other civil society groups or other stakeholders um, you know, saying what are the relevant issues that we need to really be listening and, and taking action on that is really, really important for human rights due diligence as well. Sharon, do you want to perhaps add into there? Yeah, I think the point you made at the end is spot on, Gemma. If we're talking about human rights, you always have to talk to the rights holders themselves. Who are you, Whose rights are you seeking to protect? You cannot do anything without speaking to them. And I think 
that's something that we could always spend more and more time um, on. It gets challenging when you're talking about supply chain due diligence, yeah. but I think you can only keep pushing for that. Um, so, yeah, I'd agree. But for us as well at South 32, one of the opportunities that we're trying to do is also look at where are we already doing work that is looking at human rights issues, whether it's water stewardship or diversity and inclusion, cultural heritage, environmental assessments, and put a greater human rights lens on that. Um, because I think that equally, there's a, a time and a place for standalone human rights due diligence. But just as importantly, I think there's such opportunity to integrate that human rights lens into the range of assessments that we do as, as a business. That, that makes a lot of sense, Sharon. When I reflect on the companies which have um, had significant progress on their journeys in quite a short period of time, often it's companies which have existing processes like that. Also quality assurance and things which can be broadened out where you get a better understanding of your suppliers and you can you can you can take something that was confined and actually broaden it out. Um, in a helpful way and leverage the existing systems you have. Um, I agree. And I think, um, yeah, just to add, it's probably not very glamorous, but I think an emerging space for human rights practitioners is uh, risk and assurance. And it's how you can um, develop and design risk controls on these complicated grey, they're not black and white issues that typically risk practitioners are used to dealing with. But it's so important to see, particularly in our industry, how can you design a program of risk management and controls and assurance on human rights? Mm. Yeah, certainly a lot of complexity around that. When I think about some of the, the companies who um, are perhaps starting out in this journey, I think there's often a conception that... Um, contractual clauses and the policies are things that they put in place and then they've ticked their boxes and that's the end of the road. And as they go on, they start to realise there's more and more complexity and more and more to it and more and more layers of it. And I think risk and assurance is certainly part of that. When it comes to some of those companies which are earlier in their their journey or sounds trite to say, but, you know, they're still making progress on this. Um, well, actually, I guess we're all still making progress on it. But earlier on, what are the things that you think really move the dial in this area? I, I heard Gemma mention training as one of, one of the key things, engagement as well. Are there others that you think people should have on their radar? So I think the, the key things for us are probably still, it's not, it's not rocket science and it, it's not always glamorous, but it's what I've talked about already. It's designing risk controls. It's improving our data collection um, and it's collaboration. And I think those are three things that I'll always be focusing on as a human rights practitioner to move the dial forward because um, the risk management part of it, and I think this is where my lawyer hat comes back on, is just so critical to really be checking, putting those checks and balances into our business to make sure that we are actually being effective and we're catching issues proactively and not always reactively as a business. Um, the data collection is so key to demonstrate to our internal and external stakeholders that we are effective um, and more importantly from a social practitioner um, point of view, are we having impact? That's a big question that our investors and and people are asking us, so you're doing a lot of stuff, but is it actually having impact to respect human rights at the at the right holders level? 
and collaboration. I think I couldn't ever underestimate the importance of um, working together with internal stakeholders, but also with our peers and typically um, what you, you think were competitors, like human rights is not a competitive issue. And I think that's um, why we are so um, passionate about continuing the, the human rights uh, collaborative. I'd also add that we've definitely moved past WA now. We have lots of East Coast practitioners joining, joining our, I was, I was our a little nervous. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I think it's just it just shows every bit uh, the interest that we've had in that and the way that it has grown uh, shows you that everybody does understand that collaboration is so crucial in this space. Yeah, I agree. I um, I think especially for small suppliers, the collaboration component is really, really important because I think, you know, sometimes perhaps they they might be a little bit um, apprehensive uh, to talk about modern slavery or, you know, to kind of even delve deeper into it a little bit, um, you know, within their supply chains and with their own within their own um, business. But it's actually really, really important just for them to start talking about it. So um, I think, you know, perhaps if we, um, you know, if businesses can actually work together, um, you know, and smaller suppliers, there is a lot of help out there for them. So from our perspective and from a Fortescue perspective, we're really happy to talk to all of our suppliers. We we try and engage really proactively with them. There's lots of tools that we can share um, as well as advice. Um, and I think also, you know, the training component, like Sharon mentioned as well, is really, really crucial. And certainly as practitioners, um, you know, we need to keep educating people and keep raising these issues. Um, and it needs to keep, you know, that training needs to continue across our whole business, but across our whole project life cycle. You know, there are so many businesses and projects are so large. Um, you know, it's, there's so many contractors involved in all different tiers. So it really does need to go across, yeah, the whole the whole project life cycle. But yeah, I think the collaboration and the engagement, um, yeah, is, is absolutely crucial. And it's probably sometimes, or in some cases, more than that. It's actually more partnerships. Um, I think from our perspective, you know, we're very much a values-based business. And if we really want to to end exploitation and, and slavery, um, you know, we have to be doing this, um, you know, with businesses and with suppliers who share our values um, and really want to partner with us um, on that. Gemma, that was such a great way to wrap up the discussion. Um, I think my key takeaway from what we've covered is that human rights issues can't be looked at in a vacuum. Um, you've got to look at them across your business um, and in, across the time scale that you might be doing a project. You've got to look at human rights issues through the lens of, of other in issues, whether they're environmental or commercial. Um, it shouldn't be siloed. Um, and you should also look at human rights issues outside of the scope of your own business. Um, I, I've had a real call to action here as well for those who might be um, a little anxious about em embarking on a human rights diligence exercise, um, facing the fear of the unknown. Um, it, it's great to hear that those that are a little further along the journey do have learnings and tools that can be shared. So thank you so much for sharing sharing your experiences and the work of um, the collaborative today. I, I reckon there'll be um, quite a few listeners who would like to participate and get involved. Um, Sharon, how can people um, connect with the collaborative and the work that you're doing? Feel free to reach out to Gemma or myself um, and we'd love to have you on board.
all are welcome if you're in the resources and energy space. <laughs> Excellent. That sounds like an open invitation. <laughs> we may regret that. But no. yeah. <laughs> I can promise that they're very nice and uh, <laughs> collaborative. No, to keep Excellent. all the lawyers happy, we do have a formal sort of membership and competition uh, guidelines for working together. But please do uh, reach out to either of us on LinkedIn if, you, if you'd like to learn more. Fantastic. Um, to wrap up, Tim and I like to uh, end the pod on a lighter note, um, be it a myth-busting exercise like last week um, or a example of ESG in action. Um, and today I thought we would pivot back to um, an example of ESG in action and it relates to an issue that um, we did touch on in the discussion today, water security, water stewardship. Um, access to water and sanitation is a recognised human right and um, so many people around the world lack adequate clean water supplies. From an environmental perspective, with climate change, water issues also clearly put pressure on our environment, um, ecosystems, the places we love. And in WA, I know this isn't a unique situation either, but um, you're often balancing inundation risks against supply deficits and over-allocation of water resources. Um, it's a really wicked problem to try and address water risk. Um, and certainly this is further compounded in places around the globe where water infrastructure is seriously lacking. So we can't control the weather, but technology can step in to provide a solution. And I recently saw an article about a company in Arizona that has developed hydropanels. So, Tim, you know solar PV panels. Well, this basically looks the same, but it absorbs water vapour in the air. Um, and even in the driest environments, I am told, there is water vapour still in the air. Um, and it converts it into potable water using solar energy. Now, I thought that was really cool. Um, it does look at the moment like this technology has really small generation capability um, and I bet the panels cost quite a bit. Um, but I thought this is a really interesting example of thinking outside the box to solve a complex and critical problem. Just think if this technology was able to be brought to a scale um, economically, the knock-on benefits, not just access to water, but reduction in plastic from bottled water, emissions involved in bottling and transport. Um, it's really exciting to see technology like this and to think of the game-changing ideas for other complex and critical problems like carbon that might just be over the horizon. It's, uh, I think most people recognise just how important new technology will be to addressing climate change. So, Tim, maybe this is a topic for a future pod. ESG-focused tech, investment, IP considerations, what do you reckon? I think there's quite a bit to discuss there. <laughs> yeah, it certainly sounds like something we could uh, we could pick up in future editions. Well, on that note, I think we'll wrap up this episode of The Third Wheel. Thanks again to Sharon and Gemma for joining us today. Um, our future lineup of pods will include a deep dive on litigation risks and what we've seen in the courts in 2012, um, as well as COP26. But please do reach out to Tim or I if you have a burning topic you'd like us to cover. Otherwise, thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time, ESGers. In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present 
and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.